Hello, Internets. I'm Wes, and welcome to the first episode of Geeks Grading Geekdom, podcast show thing. Every week, uh, I and whatever guest I can rope in are going to discuss the wide umbrella of geekish things in our culture. That's movies and books and TV shows and comics and who knows what else. This week, it's a hybrid of movies and comics, because I am talking about Ant-Man and the Wasp, and I'm doing it in two parts. So who the hell are you? I'm Ant-Man. Ant-Man? What, you haven't heard of me? First, what I'm going to do is give the comic history of the characters and grade them, and then I'm going to run down my review of the movie and give it a grade. The movie, Quantumania, Ant-Man and the Wasp, Quantumania, the third Ant-Man movie. The title characters, there's two, I'm going to be telling you about three. And it's going to make sense in a minute if you haven't already figured it out. Here's the deal. The first Ant-Man movie came out in 2015. That was seven years after the Marvel Cinematic Universe officially began with Iron Man. In the comics, though, Ant-Man beat Iron Man to the comics rack by over a year. It was introduced in January of 1962 in issue number 27 of the comic book Tales to Astonish. And that's a title that got an Easter egg kind of reference in the first movie. Just imagine a soldier the size of an insect. The ultimate secret weapon. Silly, I know. Propaganda. Tales to Astonish. Ant-Man was one Hank him and the story he starred in the man in the anthill was it was never intended to be a superhero origin story tales to astonish at least back then this was before ringo Starr joined the beatles that title was a science fiction and fantasy anthology comic and hank pym was a scientist man but the uh, he was the kind of comic book sort of scientist that tries out his experiments on himself. And in his case, he what he was doing was trying an experimental gizmo that shrank him down to the size of an ant. And he had an, an adventure dealing with some ants, you know, in the anthill, like the title of the story said. And I have to guess that uh, ants are kind of scary if you're their size and there's some somewhere between the size of a pit bull and a horse and there's a lot of them and they don't really like that you invaded their home he survived he actually did more than survive he thrived that issue sold better than usual for the title this according to stan lee in one of his books he was talking about it and he said that it was ant-man that did it so of course more Repeat yourself, get more sales that are higher. Hank Pym came back. Now, though, Marvel presented him as a superhero. He got the costume, he got the powers, and now he could uh, grow giant size, and he could talk to ants, and he got the name Ant-Man. Ant-Man? <laughs> That's what they called you. Right, Hank? And he got a sidekick who has her own story. Let's get into that. Janet Van Dyne's father was also a scientist, and he was killed because of experiments that brought an alien into the world, and communists were involved, and he died. She turned to Hank Pym for help. This being the comics, he, of course, helped her, and that help came in the form of Hank subjecting her to a biochemical engineering experiment that gave her powers to shrink, grow wings, and fly. It's the comics. You just have to roll with it. 
She uh, later got the power of Energy Blast to go along with that, and she took the superhero name The Wasp so that Marvel could trademark that like they did Ant-Man. And Janet, after all of this, decided that she is going to be Ant-Man's partner because she's fallen in love with him. It was the early 60s. Let's not judge too harshly. You're a weird scientist. I'm a wealthy socialite. We're both superheroes. Let's fall in love. And they did kind of, Hank uh, treated her kind of like a silly, flighty, much younger, much younger girlfriend and didn't really take to her hints, continuing hints of wanting to get married anytime soon. And did I mention, did I mention that Hank had already been married and his wife had been murdered? I didn't, okay. And that he initially rebuffed Janet's romantic overtures because Janet looked almost just like his dead wife. Well, he got over that. Uh, the two of them coupled up, yeah, and became girlfriend, boyfriend. They did superhero adventures together month after month. And one of the recurring themes was Janet you know, needling him to get more serious, get married. And she just sometimes took the form of her flirting with other guys right in front of Hank to make him jealous because that's a really good way to get a guy to decide that it's time to propose to you. I guess in the early 60s in the comics. Anyway, so they had they had their superhero adventures. They had their powers. The powers came from a thing called the Pym Particles. This was in capsule form back in uh, that day. So basically, they would pop a pill, and then they would shrink or grow as appropriate and have their adventures. And if you recognize the term Pym Particles, they showed up in the movies, but they weren't a pill. They're some kind of liquid, and there was an explanation about how they worked. When I took over this company for Dr. Pym, I immediately started researching a particle that could change the distance between atoms while increasing density and strength. But that didn't always stay consistent. <laughs> so we'll get into that maybe later. So moving on, Ant-Man and the Wasp then did their adventures and they teamed up. They became two of the founding members of the Avengers team, Marvel's premier superhero team. It happened just like it didn't happen in the movies. Because in the movies, you probably remember the founding Avengers brought together by Nick Fury, Iron Man, Captain America, and Thor, and Hulk, and then the Black Widow and Hawkeye. Well, in the comics, the... Hawkeye and Black Widow hadn't been developed yet. Captain America was a defunct character yet at the time, and it was Iron Man and Thor and the Hulk and Ant-Man and the Wasp. So they formed the Avengers, and they had Avengers missions. And then they were around for a while. They left for a while. They came back uh, and just kept superheroing. They had their stories as a feature in a book that wasn't under their own name. It was probably still Tales to Astonish for the longest time. But uh, they were a constant in the Marvel Universe for uh, for all of those years, even when they weren't Avengers. But this is when Hank began having his identity crises. Yeah, plural. Uh, over a period of a couple of years, Hank took on the identities first of Ant-Man, after being the incredible shrinking scientist, I guess. And then he was Giant-Man. Then he was Goliath. And then, then he was Yellow Jacket. And oh, God. 
Yellow Jacket. This is where the writers really started having Hank go completely off the rails mentally. That whole era deserves its own really special attention, so I won't get too much into it here. But for now, I'll, I'll sum it up as a mental break, multiple personalities, and anger issues. Lots and lots of anger issues. So this did not end well, and uh, Hank quit the whole superhero game for a while. He was forced out because of the things that he ended up doing as Yellow Jacket. He uh, made a brief return as, wait for it, Dr. Pym, yet another superhero identity. This was uh, him in the pages of the West Coast Avengers comic in the 80s, and in this one he had a big uh, Tom Baker fourth Doctor length scarf, a big uh, coat with a lot of pockets that were all filled with miniaturized weird science gizmos that he could pull out and size up to use as needed. That you see often in the movies, actually, where they pull out a tiny something or other, throw the gizmo at it, and it enlarges or it shrinks, depending on you know, what they're wanting to do. But that was his identity for a while in the West Coast Avengers. This did not last long. He, at uh, one point, almost committed suicide and was pulled back from the ledge by a, a hero called Firebird. But again, this is a whole nother story. The Wasp, meanwhile carried on superheroing on and off again, but she did end up marrying Hank during his yellow jacket break because she knew that it was Hank, just Hank not thinking he was Hank. And what better time to marry a guy than when he's suffering from multiple personality disorder and thinks he's someone completely other than who he is. So they got married and it was a good time. And Hank had a, another sort of mental breakthrough that calmed him down maybe a little bit, but uh, not long. So that didn't last. They ended up divorced and then they came back together as a couple. And then they were on and off again, because I guess that's more interesting to read as a, for a couple that's on and off again. I don't know. Ask the people who wrote friends and (laughs) see what they have to say about it. But uh, it also, it's, that's kind of a little unfair because this all happened over the course of many, many years of comic book tales. So there were a lot of writers and a lot of editors that had their hands on this, which is something I'm going to bring up a little bit later on. For her sake, though, uh, other than marrying Yellow Jacket Hank Pym when he was in the throes of a, a spike of mental illness, the Wasp did keep superheroing, and she had a really good growth starting in the 80s uh, after all of this yellow jacket business she became the chairman of the avengers team and held that position for a long time and during that time it, it, she was extremely well written and grew into the task that she had uh, set for herself uh, she wanted to do something besides being the flighty little socialite uh, whose scientist boyfriend gave her superpowers. And and she did, and that was good. She also became a fashion designer, which is kind of a cliche for a woman superhero to get involved in, I guess. It, uh, it, it happened anyway. She also kept changing her costume like every year or so, sometimes more often. Uh, guess keeping in theme with the uh, fashion designer sort of thing, or just because the artist got bored and wanted to... Uh, 
do something like that. She also, at some point, I think in the 90s, became an insectoid creature for a while. It's It was weird, but it's the comics. And uh, time went on. Uh, Hank eventually did return to being a superhero. He was central, actually, a central character in a big crossover time-traveling comic book event called the Destiny War, which saw two versions of himself from two different time periods and two personality types interact, betray each other, then team up and eventually win the day. Yeah, the comics are a little bit weirder than the movies. The uh, powers kept changing too, uh, sometimes subtly, some not so much. The Pym Particle of Pills stopped early, kind of being a thing that they needed to do. At, uh, at It was very strange. At uh, one point, the Pym Particles were distributed through gas canisters to them, but yeah, eventually they could just change size and do all of the other superhero-y stuff, basically at will. They just, it's like flexing some kind of mental muscle, they would uh, trigger the effect and they would be smaller or larger or what have you. And that's what I started reading it. So when I went into the got an archive of old early Avengers stories and saw the two of them explaining that their powers came from these pills that they had to take to shrink down and then to get large again. It was, uh, it was a shock. It was new information to me and just seemed weird, but uh, that was probably 25 years on from their uh, initial appearance. But uh, here we go. It's, uh, it's really only ridiculous if you insist on remaining completely grounded in the real world and think about it all too hard. It was. It was very weird. It was It was plenty ridiculous. But it was also a whole lot of fun and generally internally consistent. So not going to complain about that. That's the basics, though. That's the basics of those two characters. The scientist superhero with the ability to shrink or grow both himself and things. Sometimes he can talk to ants. And sometimes that's sort of you know, just sort of a sidebar power like, oh yeah, he can also do this, and we use it sometimes. There's also the socialite superhero who can shrink and fly and shoot power beams from her hands, and Janet could Janet could actually grow, too. The writers and editors at Marvel, though, rarely showed it, so when they did, it was really a wow moment, because I never saw it coming the couple of times I, I read it in a story, so that was something she could do. She just almost never did. So there we are. Now, I promised you three characters. Here's the third one. The other Ant-Man. The one who's the Ant-Man in the movies. That is a guy called Scott Lang. He came into being while Hank was busy being Yellow Jacket. And editorially, the this opened up the name Ant-Man for someone else to use. This is something that the Marvel editors realized and... Also, if you if you have a great name that you use uh, for publication and then you stop using it for a while, you risk the trademark or the copyright rather going away and clearing out. And that would open up the door for some other company to start using the Ant-Man name. It's happened. Ask Captain Marvel. That's its own complete story. But be that as it may, Marvel decided to make sure there was another Ant-Man and they presented Scott Lang a reformed burglar who stole the Ant-Man suit Pym wasn't using to rescue a scientist who was the only one able to help his dying daughter Cassie. And he did not get his own book, but he popped up from time to time when the writers would have a good way to use him. And he did eventually join the Avengers, and later he died. But it's okay. It's the comics. He came back. We're all good like that. So the whole deal about him is, well, like Scott and, uh, sorry, like, like Hank and Janet, 
Scott's powers originally all came from the suit. That, of course, changed because you know, who needs the hassle of having to deal with the suit when you, you can save a couple of, I guess, of some uh, panels of art by just having the change happen. For the MCU, though, it's all the costumes and the Pym particles. And there's a quick aside to clear up a few basic differences between the comic book and movie characters. In the movies, Hank Pym, played by Michael Douglas, is retired. He's married to Janet, and oh, he's a short-tempered guy and cranky. He's not mentally ill, and he is very much in love with Janet. And Janet is played by Michelle Pfeiffer. She was the first Wasp in the movies. And then there's uh, Scott Lang, who is frankly a really good comic-to-film adaptation. Paul Rudd carries it off just very well uh, for this reform burglar that is recruited for his burglary skills by Hank Pym in the first movie in a very overcomplicated uh, plot to get him involved. But uh, it culminates that it's his burglary skills that he wants. If you can help me, I promise I can help you be with your daughter again. Now, are you ready to redeem yourself? Absolutely. My days of breaking into places and stealing shit are done. What do you want me to do? I want you to break into a place and steal some shit. Now, unmentioned so far is the Wasp of the MCU. That's the second Wasp, who is Hope Van Dyne in the MCU. Now, in the movies, she is the daughter of Hank and Janet Pym. In the comics, though, so far as I know, in the they never had children. At least not in the main Marvel Comics universe. I'll explain. For a while, Marvel Comics Incorporated had an imprint line they called A2. This was a place where they would tell stories happening in the future, not like hundreds of years in the future, like their 2099 line, just the next generation. So all the kids' sidekicks and so on are all grown up and they're having their own adventures. It's like Star Trek Next Generation or whatever that series, that sequel series to Rugrats was called. Okay, all grown up. <laughs> there you go. Anyway, in that line, Marvel established that the Pims did have children. They had a boy child and they had a girl named Hope. So there we go. And I didn't ever read any of those stories, so I have no idea how much they changed hope for the MCU, so we'll just move on. On to the grades. It is uh, really, frankly, difficult to sum up characters that have decades and decades of history with a simple grade, just because there is so much that happened to them, and there were so many writers and editors and uh, sales pressures and promotional needs to uh, consider for these stories. And uh, like I said, a lot of hands on these characters over the decades, but that's the way comics work. And I'm here to grade. So here we go. Hank Pym as Ant-Man and every other name that he ever took a B. He frankly started as a stock character trope that was already pretty well-worn by the time he was introduced in the early 60s and never really veered very far off course. He was like the adventuring scientist, and uh, his powers, though, are solid. His mental illness allowed for some interesting angles to stories for years, uh, but ultimately I think Marvel editorial could never seem to settle on what they wanted to do with him. Okay, so then Janet Van Dyne as the Wasp in the comics, B+. Okay, now if you'd asked me to grade her based on, say, anything from the first 20 years of publication, I'd say a C at best, but the writers treated her really, really well in the 80s, as I went on about earlier, uh, especially with her taking the mantle of the Avengers chair. Uh, but all that said, I've never been able to see her really more as a support kind of character. But 
those are really critically important. It's critical to stories to have really good supporting characters with their own stories that are solid and have their own motivations and are believable, just like Janet was. So please no hate about the, the grade there on, on that. Moving on to Scott Lang as Ant-Man. A- minus in the comics. Uh, his background as a burglar made him more interesting, I thought, from the get-go. His sick daughter provided a relatable, if also kind of worn, motivation to go steal the suit in the first place. And I think that early life he had as an outlaw tracks when it comes to why he kept superheroing. The thrill of it, adrenaline junkie. So, again, though, all that said, I still really can only see him as a support character. And the fact he never was able to get his own title under his own name, I think is sort of evidence of that. But even so, really good for a really good support character. A minus for Scott Lang as Ant-Man in the comics. So there we go. That is part one, the characters. Next up, my take and grade on the movie, Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania. So here we go with that. Um, in short, I enjoyed it. And in fact, everyone else I've spoken to who saw it also enjoyed it. Uh, the critics, for whatever reasons, did not like it. And there's a lot of internet uh, dislike coming, too. There's videos titled, Does Ant-Man and the Wasp Quantumania Actually Really Suck? Well, no, it doesn't, all right? It's well worth seeing. It is not in, say, the top eight MCU movies, and I do have some issues with it that I'm going to talk about, but it doesn't deserve all the critical hate thrown at it from everywhere. First off, it's visually stunning, it must have been hell working with a green screen just about all the time because the, the scenery in most of the movie is nothing to be found on Earth. But it's completely worth seeing on the big screen just for that. The uh, movie does open with a prelude that's a flashback to Janet's time in the quantum realm. This could be confusing if you haven't seen the first two movies. But on the other hand, this is a franchise, so... Uh, it, it's not really unreasonable to expect that the audience has seen the first two. Either way, though, it, it, a title card might have been nice, but it would have been kind of easy to figure out, I think, either way as the movie went on. It starts out with us catching up with the characters. The last time we saw them was in Endgame. And uh, since then, uh, Hope is now in charge of the Pym company that they got back from the uh, guy, Darren, who was the villain of the first movie. They are changing the world with PIM particles in something I hope we eventually see some follow-up about. That'd be nice. Scott wrote his book about his life being an Ant-Man and an Avenger, and things are going generally well. Then we get word that his daughter Cassie is in jail again, it seems. So a couple of things on Cassie. Uh, first off, there's been a lot, a lot of chatter about Marvel setting up the Young Avengers in the Marvel Cinematic Universe. For those of you who don't know, the Young Avengers were, well, pretty much exactly what their name suggests. It's a comic book team that appeared in Young Avengers number one in 2005, and they the team features, according to Wikipedia, numerous adolescent characters who typically have connections to established members of Marvel's primary superhero team, the Avengers, close quote. So, without getting too deep into distraction about them, the MCU has been having a series of younger versions of established heroes show up. There's the two maybe not-so-imaginary kids of the Scarlet Witch. There's Kate Bishop from the Hawkeye show. We met Hulkling at the end of She-Hulk. And now here's Cassie, daughter of Ant-Man, with her own suit to give her the power of size-changing. So, a young size-changer. That's five. That's enough for a team. I'm just saying. Anyway... Uh, we find out that Cassie is a bonafide genius 
because she built this quantum gizmo designed to map the realm without actually going there. This, I okay, I can buy this. It wasn't established in the first two movies where Cassie appeared, but in the first movie, she was a very young child, and in the second one, she wasn't there all that much. But uh, genius can come from anywhere, and we know her mom's smart, and she's got Hank Pym right there as a tutor. That, uh, I can I can buy it. I'm okay with that. But Scott Lang's parenting, I have kind of a problem with. Scott Lang was in the quantum realm for and missed five years of his daughter's life. His daughter that he did all of the things he did in the first movie for in the first place. That's how Hank roped him in. If you can help me, I promise I can help you be with your daughter again. And for him to be kind of unaware that Cassie is that smart and has built this gizmo working in some kind of secret with uh, Dr. Pym just stretches things you know, more than I can believe for me because he was so focused on her and wanting to be part of her life. The only way I can, you know, maybe he was out on a book tour for the past six months and missed a lot of this. I don't know. But uh, he just... I would think he would be keeping up with her life more. This bugs me, and it just seems like a flaw, and no pun intended there, sorry. And then also, Janet. Janet, who missed more than five years of life with her family, seems okay with Henry working and spending what must have been a bunch of time with Cassie. She gets a little freaked out when Cassie explains and demonstrates how this gizmo works. It sends a signal to the quantum realm, and Janet demands it gets turned off, but not soon enough. They're all sucked into the quantum realm, and the adventure begins. Ripping the story down to its basics, we have a group of heroes who get separated, both teams looking for each other, they're meeting locals, because it turns out there is indeed civilization in the quantum realm. A lot of it, in fact. We also learn there's a conqueror who's coming after the people that Scott and Cassie hook up with. His forces catch up. There's a big fight. We see Cassie's super suit and uh, Scott giving her some quick tips on how to be an effective fighter through size changing. And then uh, there's the appearance of Modoc, who I will get to. They end up getting captured, uh, but uh, ingratiate themselves with the locals. And while that's going on, Hank and Hope learn Janet's been keeping basically everything about the quantum realm a secret from them the couple of years that she's been out from it turns out she had a full life she knows the locals how to talk with them how to fly a moth mount beastie uh where to go for to find this power broker that she worked with and oh yeah she's also kind of completely responsible for kang the conqueror coming to power in the quantum realm and she slept with him but she had needs so i guess we're okay with that anyway the uh, three of them meet up with the power broker who was part of the rebellion that Janet took part in or maybe led. It's unclear. But uh, this guy is a character who did appear in the comics once and is played by Bill Murray. Huh. I'm just going to say it. I love Bill Murray to death, but he was a fucking distraction in this movie. He's just one of those actors that I can never see as the character, but as Bill Murray playing the character. I didn't see Mr. Cross in Scrooged. I saw Bill Murray playing a TV executive, just like I saw Bill Murray as What's-His-Nuts-The-Power-Broker. This bit could have been played by anyone, and Marvel could have saved whatever Bill cost, because I bet he wasn't cheap, even though he wasn't in the movie for about 15 minutes. Anyway that rant over uh things go weird and the pims escape in bill murray's spaceship and retreat to make some plans and scott and cassie are in kang's dungeon modok returns to taunt them at this point and a little about modok this was a character created in 1967 by the legendary jack kirby and stan lee 
which means it's very possible he was solely created by Jack Kirby. Anyway, his name is an acronym meaning Mechanized Organism Designed Only for Killing. MODOK has one and only one, so far as I'm concerned, thing going for him. He is a visually striking character. Other than that, he's just silly. MODOK is a giant floating head in armor with little legs and arms dangling from it. And I haven't read or seen all of his appearances through the decades, but none of the ones I have seen did anything remotely interesting with him. So I was totally fine with the movie version of him being Darren Cross. He's the evil corporate dude from the first movie who used the yellow jacket shrink power suit to have a climactic fight with Scott Lang on a Thomas the Tank Engine playset. This gave him, uh, Darren, good motivation to hate Scott and Hank, good reason for Cassie to be fearful of him, and a good excuse for him to be mentally damaged, which was established in the first movie. The process is highly volatile. One isn't protected by a specialized helmet can affect the brain's chemistry. I don't think Darren realizes this, and, you know, he's not the most stable guy to begin with. And it turns out that he picked up Cassie's signal in the quantum realm, and he's the one that caused the accident that brought them all here. What I loved, I really loved this, how Scott and Cassie made fun of his little baby arms and how his acronym is wrong. Mechanized organism designed only for killing would be MODOFK. He's a flunky for Kang, abused by him for stepping the least bit out of line, like talking at the wrong time. So I can totally buy this damaged guy being someone who is the type of person who listens to the last person who showed power over him, like Kang had for a long time. So, but that means this late movie change of heart that he has that uh, comes from when the girl who beat him up, Cassie, told him to just stop being a dick. I can accept that. I'm in. I buy it. Back to Kang and Scott, though. We learned that there are other powers, which are other versions of Kang, but that's a multiverse thing that they kind of brush the surface of in the movie. Uh, they exiled him to this quantum realm because it's a place outside time and space, and he can't come back to beat up on them and wage war or whatever. They sent Kang here in a multiversal time ship with a depleted power core. This trapped him here. He wants out to go out and bring order to the multiverse because all good, narcissistic, strong man, fascist dictators like to run for office on the bringing order kind of platform. So does Kang. It turns out Kang was a dude in the opening flashback scene and Janet worked with him for relative years to recharge the power core. She didn't know his backstory about him being an evil fascist conqueror kind of person until she was helping to load the power core into the ship. See, here's how this works. Kang's ship and power core are mentally controlled, so it does what Kang tells it to do mentally. But by touching it, Janet got mentally connected to it and was flooded with memories from Kang, and that's absolutely how these things work. Ask any engineer. They'll, they'll tell you, yes, magic space quantum telepathy works exactly like that because physics or psychics, one, one or the other. It's a comic book movie. Really, so long as it's internally consistent, I'm happy they just gave an explanation. But at that moment, knowing Kang's true nature, Janet decides she can't help this conqueror escape and destroy billions of people and universes. They can rewrite existence and shatter timelines. You cannot trust him. So she uses the size-changing gizmo she had to make the power core the size of like a small building and just unusable. So Kang now wants Scott to go to the core, shrink it down to something of usable size, return, and uh, he'll let uh, Scott and his daughter go. Scott is not really up for this right away. Kang sort of 
tries to massage him into telling him what he can do for him. I'm the man who can give you the one thing you want. You're an Avenger and you have a daughter, but you've lost a lot of time. Like me, we can help each other with that. And then he just outright threatens him about the whole thing and starts torturing Cassie in the next cell across, which also includes a very real threat to make Scott relive his daughter's death again and again once it happens. You will bring me what I need. Or everything you call life will end. So Scott reluctantly agrees. And then multiple Scots start showing up in right there. He, they pop right out of him because of the potential hymns of the future or these things and hymns from the past, I guess. They're all showing up because multiverse power core quantum magic energy stuff means every decision Scott made or could have made makes another scott pop up and then soon there's just hundreds and hundreds of these and there's a scene where they all work together to make a kind of tower that scott climbs to reach the floating power core yeah it it's floating the gigantic power core mcguffin is floating and it's all filmed to remind us of how ants work together to do the same thing it's like they staged this whole scene after watching ants escaping a flood or going after an apple or something it was obvious but here's the movie's name includes ant-man so a scene like this i I thought it was just great but uh anyway so he's scott is almost there ready to do the thing to the MacGuffin to uh make it shrink down but uh, he, he can't quite reach it oh no well, luckily, the Pims are on approach. They figured out their plans. Hope comes out in her wasp suit. Then there's multiple hopes, and they all come to back as one as the heroes all realize that every version of them now wants the exact same thing. Save Cassie, get the power core. It cleans up the scene, and, and that's helpful. And I, I thought the scene was so fun. I don't care that it's kind of a thin excuse, but that's fine. Um, What's not explained, unless I spaced off somehow, was how did the Pims know to come here? And it's possible that Janet thought it was a reasonable thing to do, and so they headed this way. But how did Kang, who was right there at the edge of the cliff, looking at the big inflated power core gizmo, not see the Pims approaching or detect them? And then how did Hope know that Scott was trying to shrink the power core? All of these questions I have were unanswered by the movie. I could have used some answers, but didn't get them, so they're moving on to the next thing. And that's the heroes getting together, getting stymied, Cassie helps hack a thing and raises a rebellion, frees some prisoners, Kang tries to escape the quantum realm because he did get the power core, there's a huge fight, Scott becomes giant man, Cassie ends up doing the same thing, which was just great to see and watch, and the two of them have this cute talk about being so hungry, about being in action and giant sized and with this and and i just that's i think a little bit of perfection acknowledging at least a nod to metabolism and superpowers and then hank he's still in the movie he got slapped away while piloting bill murray's spaceship he returns with these super ants now the super ants were a thing they established early in the movie it was almost a throwaway because it was the lead-in right after that they went into cassie's big super quantum mapping gizmo thing but the the super ants were they're kind of like the little people in theodore sturgeon's story microscopic god the ants in hank's lab had been rapidly evolving and advancing technology wise all while just i guess apparently being okay with being in a lab setting and trapped kind of like prisoners or lab rats lab ants 
Some of them were sucked in during that big accident that brought the heroes in. And since Hank Pym has his gizmo that let him, lets him talk and communicate with ants, he convinced them to be the ones who make the big final difference in the fight. And that was another cool thing to see. The ants coming in from the original Ant-Man. And there's a last-minute complication. Kang's, though, defeated, in quotes, and the heroes all escape. Defeat is in quotes because we don't see a body, and you probably know the rule. No body, not really dead. I'm rushing over some things toward the end because I've, I've hit the high points. The mid- and post credit scenes set up the Kang Council, which seems to be a Kang origin, and maybe uh, the next phase of the MCU. Loki and Mobius show up, so that was fun. And there... There's a lot to love about this movie. There's the trademark Marvel humor. It's very present and never overbearing or forced. The costumes look great. It is visually stunning. And the overall plot is good. It does also have more than a few problems. The biggest flaw to me is that the whole thing could have been avoided by a conversation. And that is a persistent flaw in a lot of stories, isn't it? If Janet had given her reasons for why the quantum realm was so dangerous, but obviously not so dangerous that to make her protest when they sent Scott back at the end of the second movie, uh, this could have all been avoided. If she had talked to her husband about what had happened down there and why it needed to be completely isolated. There's something I never told you. Well, well, then the movie wouldn't have happened and we wouldn't have this movie, or at least not this one. And, you know, uh, people who act only with caution and intelligence don't really make for good superhero movie leads. So, okay, I'll, I'll sort of let that one slide a little bit, even though it's only a little bit and I'm, I'm looking at you. Uh, I do reject the argument that this was nothing but a poor setup for Phase 5 of Marvel's Cinematic Universe. The movie was self-contained, apart from some very unimportant references that uh, you need not have seen other Marvel movies to follow along, except maybe the two other Ant-Man movies. Those would have been really helpful to see. But if, you, if the other two Ant-Man movies had been the only Marvel movies you'd seen, you would have been able to follow this just fine. If Scott had shown that he knew more about Cassie's life, say, by knowing she's a genius, uh, encouraging her work with Hank Pym, being surprised at the dinner scene when they said, the gizmo's ready, and Scott replying would just, oh, already? Uh, and if he'd known she had a super suit, then I would grade this movie higher. Uh, if the things I mentioned could have used an explanation were explained, I would grade this movie higher. If Bill Murray had not been in this movie, I would have graded it higher. With all that said, my grade for the Ant-Man and Wasp Quantumania is a B. It could have been an A-, minus, but it's not. So there we go. One last thing. So far as I know, there's been only one live-action presentation of the Ant-Man character that predates the 2015 movie. If you know, text the show, 901-878-9420. There is an old-fashioned Marvel no-prize for the people that uh, tell me that answer. And uh, that's also the same number, 901-878-9420, to text and tell me how wrong I am and how I don't know what I'm talking about. Good times. Wonderfully good times. I've got uh, more of these Geek Grading Geekdom podcasts coming weekly. Others uh, kind of podcasts are also on the way throughout the station. So enjoy. I am Wes Shahola, and this is Drake Digital. <laughs>